place clears out of here when the kids uh, kids all roam. It's good to have a place uh, for them to be. I tell you, if you are a parent, you no doubt have been asked many, many, many questions by your kid uh, over the course of their lifetime, um, and they may have asked you, "Can I do this? Can I go here?" And you may say no, and their inevitable question back is what? Why? And how many of you have ever said the, because I said so? I mean, that's what happens. I found an article online, uh, just uh, humorous, I can always share bits and pieces of it, um, but it's response to this, because I said so. Uh, the article was titled, Hey Kids, Here's What I Meant When I Told You Because I Said So. So why do you have to wear a life jacket? Well, because that water is cold and deep, and even after three sets of swimming lessons, you drop like an anchor in that water. I don't want to be on the evening news. That makes sense. Why can't you feed the squirrel? Well, because I don't want to cut this camping trip short and take him to the emergency room for rabies shots. Why can't we play another game? Because you've beaten me eight times in a row at Uno. And I'm quite disturbed by the way you cackle when slapping draw fours on the pile. That little one there had a caveat underneath that I just thought was hilarious, and I'm going to read it. You may not think it's hilarious, but it made me laugh because I've been in this situation. He, and this is a response to getting beat by Uno, in, uh, in Uno. He says, yeah, it's fun sticking it to your dear old dad, isn't it? Getting to win, that's a nice feeling. I wouldn't know, of course. Since I'm on the epic losing streak, I can't blame the dealer because it's me. I shuffle too, of course. You just sit there raining down blows of skips and reverses and draw tunes like it's your job. It's okay, I can take it. What I wouldn't mind missing out on is the delighted evil gleam in your eye when you drop the big one on my green seven. How many draw four cars are there in this deck anyway? And why do they end up in your hands? Apparently I've failed you, at least in the area of instilling morals and sense of fair play. Give a guy a break already, enough Uno for the day. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. Kids will get you to your end, right? Uh, they will often be inquisitive, asking you question after question. They want to know why something is the way it is. Dad, why is the sky blue? Dad, where does, where does the wind come from? I mean, questions that you and I as adults, we just don't even ponder anymore. They want to know why things are the way they are, and they are persistent. Dad, where do babies come from? <coughs> you just think to yourself. How about when your child asks you, hey, can I go here or do this? Or uh, maybe I want ice cream before going to bed. And we, of course, will say no. And the inevitable reply of why comes up. And, of course, our response is because I said so. I mean, that's, that's the trump card, right? You lay that card down. But you could have easily led with, well, because ice cream before bed might hurt your stomach. Or because I've heard it said, if you eat right before you go to bed, you might have bad dreams. But we just jump straight to the, well, because I said so. And of course, does that really work for us? No. Because it's why, 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 because I said so. It doesn't usually work out, but it really should be enough. Today, we're going to be looking at the ultimate because I said so moments. This really is part two of our message from last week that we talked about. And just by way of catching you up very briefly, if you weren't with us last week or if you haven't been with us, we're going through the book of Colossians. 
Um, and we've entitled this series, Truth in Action. The book of Colossians has so much hardcore truth, but what we know about the Bible is every time we see truth, it calls you and I to action. This book is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church of Colossae. He's writing to refute these false teachers, those that are trying to do harm to the church, but he's also writing to the Colossians so he can give them some ammunition to take on the false teachers in his absence. In doing all of that, what has he done? He's encouraged the church. He has encouraged them to be thankful day by day, to be thankful that they've received the good news, but to also share the good news. Paul is adamant that they grow in their knowledge and they please God by bearing fruit in all things. Now, last week, we saw that Paul explained that Jesus was over all, he's in all, he made all things, he holds all things together, and he is head of the church. Why? So that he would come to be and have first place in everything. So we, we hear all of that. We hear all, everything that Paul has said up to this point, and he says, so that Jesus will come to have first place in everything. Of course, the inevitable child inside of us wonders why. Why is it set up that way? Why did God set things up in this simple way? Well, Paul's moment here is, is big. It's the ultimate parent moment. It's in verse 19. Verse 19 in chapter 1. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Because that is the way God set it up. That's the way God set it up and it pleases him. I mean, it's the ultimate because I said so moment. And, and you and I, we have to ask ourselves, do we have confidence? Do we have confidence that God knows what he's doing? Do we, do we trust in the sovereignty of God? Why is creation set up the way it is? Well, because it pleases God. Why is Christ overall and in all and hold all things together? Because it pleases God. Why is Christ head of the church? It pleases God. God. See, all things exist for His pleasure. You and I were created for His pleasure, not the other way around. So while we may think at times in our minds when something happens, we may think to ourselves, you know what? I'm not sure I would have done it that way. God, I see you working, but I I'm not sure that I would have done it exactly that way. I might have changed a little something, but guess what? All that is irrelevant. Because things are set up the way they are. Because it brings pleasure and glory to God. Enough said. But much like children, we need a little bit more reason sometimes, don't we? And so he goes on to say, it was all for his pleasure that all the fullness dwell within him. What does Paul mean by this, this term fullness? Well, if, if you take into account the argument of the false teachers as they were surrounding the church at that time, their argument was to refute the deity of Jesus Christ. And so if you look ahead and you look in the immediate context, but also in the context of this book, you see uh, even more on that. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And so when he talks about fullness, he's talking about God in the flesh and having complete deity. One author says this, The declaration that the very essence of deity was present in totality in Jesus' human body was a direct refutation of the Gnostic teaching, which was the, the heretics that were a part of that day. And so he moves on into verse 20 and he says, And through him to reconcile, reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
See, it pleases God. It pleased God to do all of this, to reconcile all things to himself through his son. And I think we understand what that term is, that idea of reconciliation. It means to bring back into a state of harmony. See, since the very beginning of time, what do we know? Back in the garden, the garden account, with the very first sin in the world, we see that disorder has been introduced. And not only to man, but to all of creation. We, we see that when we read in Genesis of that account. See, before sin, there was complete harmony with God. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. There was nothing wrong in all of creation. But what do we see after that? We see destruction. We see disconnect. We see death. We see a total disorder of creation as a whole. But notice Paul says all things will be reconciled. I want you to understand this, however. This is not in reference to all people in all places being saved, coming to Christ. That's not what this text teaches, nor what the Bible teaches as a whole. But what, what do we know in Philippians 2? We know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That does not mean that every person will come to know Christ, but they will ultimately submit. And so there's this reference to Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross and what he accomplished was the possibility of peace to man and complete harmony for all of creation. And it's realized only when Christ comes, and, it's, and which is spoken about in Romans chapter 8. So the question is, how did he reconcile? How did he bring things back into harmony with him? Well, we see it in the text. It's through the blood of the cross. See, Paul says he made peace. Again, in reference to this disconnect, this the complete discord between God and man, he made peace how? Through the blood of the cross. Of course, we know what we're told in Scripture, that without the shedding of blood, and you hear me reference this uh, occasionally, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. We also know as we go further on in Romans Road, we, we, we see that the wage of sin is death, that all have sinned and fall short of glory of the glory of God. That's the disconnect. And so when we are reconciled to God, it is by him. It's by what he has done. And it's God that restores man to a right relationship with him. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ. What we need to realize is that when Jesus gave his blood on that cross, he met the demands of the law, the demands of sin. He paid the penalty for you and I, as is talked about in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, it's through him. It's because of him. And it's by his initiative and his eternal and perfect love and grace. And it was by his blood. See, Paul emphasizes this in, in all the letters that he sends out to these churches. He emphasizes this. Uh, again, you see in Acts chapter 20, this is Luke's account. Uh, Luke is the author here, and he's uh, bringing into account what Paul said. Paul says this, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock, among, amongst which uh, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. See, the Apostle Paul was about to leave the, the leaders of the church, and he wants them to know, he wants to remind them before he heads out, that they need to protect the flock because they're precious. Well, the, the question is, why are they precious? They're precious because they have been purchased, and they've been purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, that was the payment. Not only have we been purchased, but in Romans, it says that we are justified, Romans 5, 9, uh, which is an easy way to remember what that uh, word justified means. It's justified, never sinned. It's a simple way to remember it. It's simply like that. Like we have never sinned and, and therefore we're saved from the wrath of God. And not only have we been bought and justified, but we have redemption 
through His blood. Ephesians 1.7, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of His grace. And it's reiterated again in 1 John, when John says that we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, it, it, it wasn't just that any blood would do. It had to be the perfect sacrifice. It had to be the sacrifice of Jesus. See, Hebrews 10.4 says that it is impossible for bull, the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. See, it had to be the precious blood of the Lamb, the Son of God. And so as we move forward in this text in, in verses 21 to 22, what we're going to see is he's going to paint a picture for us. Paul, the, the author of this letter, the writer of this letter, he's going to paint a picture of where we have been and where we are now. See, look at verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. See, Paul wants to remind the Colossians. He wants to remind them of where they've come from. He says, you were formally hostile. You were formerly had these evil actions. Of course, we understand formally speaking of the past. But it is important for us to understand that this idea of the past is not just the fact that it's in the past. It's the fact that it's no more. See, there's, there's something that can happen in the past. Like, I could have a glass of water and walk out and drop the glass and it, it breaks. It's broken. And that continues from the past to the present. Yet the verbiage here in this passage makes it very clear that what is being spoken about is not just in the past. It doesn't even exist anymore. It's simply no more. The, the, the same word to help us understand it is found in John 9, 13, when it speaks of a man who was formerly blind before he met Jesus Christ. Jesus healed him. See, he was formerly blind. That was what was in his past. That the blindness did not keep going into the future. He left the blindness behind and he can now see. He can now see why? Because of Jesus Christ. See, Paul uses this idea, this word uh, formally uh, when he gives his own testimony before the Galatians. Which, by the way, this is a perfect opportunity to use that term. So we talk about a testimony, we're talking about where we've been and now where we are. And why? Because of Christ. He says, you've heard about my former life, the life in the past, how I used to persecute and try to destroy the church. But see, it's in the past. It's, it's, it's done away with. It's, it's not a part of Paul anymore. The same rings true for you and I as believers. Paul reiterates this in his letter uh, to the Ephesians. Three times he says, you know, you were formerly, you walked in this world in the past. Formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. You were formerly in the darkness. It doesn't even exist anymore. We are set free of the world. You and I as believers, we don't have to give in to sin and the lust of the flesh. And as Ephesians 5 talks about, we are in the light. We walk as children of the light. See, he says we used to be alienated. Look at that word in verse 21. It says we were alienated, which means we were shut out. We were excluded. We were hostile in mind, as he goes on to say, which means we were at odds with God. You and I, we didn't see things eye to eye at all. It's not that we were just at odds. The hostile is also translated from the Greek as an enemy. Romans 5.10 says that before we came to know him, we were enemies of God, meaning we were in direct opposition. And not just that we thought differently, not that it just stayed in our minds, but it came out in our actions, our words, and our deeds, because he says we were engaged in these evil deeds. See, what Paul is doing is he is painting a picture of our past. And it's not perfect. It's ugly, and it's embarrassing. Each summer, 
we take a group of boys up to my parents' house in, in northern Maine. We stack some wood uh, for people around the church. And one of the favorite things that the boys get to do is they go into my mother's and father's house and they look around for embarrassing pictures of me as a boy. <laughs> and they absolutely love it. In fact, they take pictures of it so they can upload it. And uh, uh, there's one picture in particularly. It's, I have two older sisters. It's me and my sisters. Uh, and we have a nice mountainous background. Um, and... Man, I used to have hair, by the way. I, I don't know if any of you have seen pictures, but I just had this full head of hair, and it was feathered back. You know, I used to feather your hair. Uh, I don't know if it was in that picture, but I used to have hair down to here, and it would curl in the back. I mean, it was flowing. I know you wouldn't be able to tell by looking at me. But I look at that picture, and I'm not going to speak for my sisters, because both my sisters are, are, are beautiful, and I'm sure that picture is beautiful, but I'm sure they feel the same way when they look at this picture, and they go, oh my goodness. I, I find it's one of the ugliest pictures of me that, that are out there. And there's a lot, by the way. Um, <laughs> but you look at it, it's in the past, right? And, and I think about it, I look at it, and I think, wow, that is an ugly, embarrassing picture of me in the past. It's, not, it's really not who I am at, at, at all today. See, Paul paints this picture. And he uses words that are harsh. He says we were alienated before Christ. That we were enemies that we were evil. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible picture. It's ugly and embarrassing what our life was like before Christ. However, aren't you glad that your story didn't end there? Aren't you glad that our story doesn't end with us being uh, hostile and enemies to God? Our story doesn't have to be about our past. It's about our future, that which we have to look forward to and be so thankful you know, even though the outlook for mankind in general without Christ is bleak, notice how Paul starts out verse 22. See, after all that has happened, after you and I being enemies of God, separated from Him, Paul says, yet. Some of you are reading in the NIV. It says, but. In the Greek, it's translated, nevertheless. See, on our own, we are literally up the creek without a paddle. But with Him, we have hope. Listen to verse 22. Yet. But, nevertheless, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy, blameless, beyond reproach. See, he reiterates what we already know. He's reconciled it. He's brought us back into harmony uh, with, with, with God through the death of Jesus Christ. And, and, and now look at the contrast from one verse, just one verse to another. Verse 21 paints us as ugly and embarrassing picture of before we knew God. And now verse 22 speaks about you and I as believers. Our current and our future condition of being holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. I mean, that's a 180. I mean, an absolute, complete turnaround. And it's because of the person of Jesus Christ. It's because of what he has done that he can now present us, even now, positionally before God. And in the future, in the end of all things, we are presented as new creatures. He says, you're holy. We understand what this term means. It's, it's to be set apart, distinct. One author says this about being holy. Holy refers to the believer's positional relationship to God. He is separated from sin and set apart to God by imputed righteousness. That's justification, which we've already talked about. As a result of the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection, listen to this, God considers Christians as holy. 
I mean, do you remember that peace that we talked about that was made through the blood of, of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus Christ did not make peace so that, 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 so that we uh, would not be holy, that we would remain as, as, as rebels and enemies, but he made peace so that we would be set apart for his purpose. And our purpose is to bring honor and glory to God. He says, you're holy, you're, you're blameless, which by the way, this word blameless does not mean to be perfect or completely without sin. We know, as we talked about in Romans, there's no one righteous, not one. We also know, as stated earlier, that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. This term blameless is something, a term that was used uh, often in the Old Testament. And it's used in reference to a sacrifice. See, when animals were going to be sacrificed, as God required in the Old Testament, they needed to be blameless, meaning without blemish or without flaw. Not that they were perfect, but as far as anyone could see, they were, they were simply innocent. Another way blameless is used in the Old Testament is in reference to a person, in reference to them as being morally and ethically pure. This is how Job is described in the book that states his history. So, so with this view in mind, we can see that this blameless does not refer to perfection as far as our personal conduct, but it refers to our position in Christ and our identification with him. In that case, through the eyes of Jesus Christ, we are spotless. We are blameless. He goes on to say, we are beyond reproach, which is similar. It's similar to blameless, uh, but it's the same word in the New Testament used to describe elders and deacons in the church. It's something where nothing can be brought into account. They can't be accused of anything. Again, not referring to perfection in deed, but to perfection in position, which is our stance as believers. That's the amazing thing. That's how you and I are viewed through the eyes of God, uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing how God views us because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Which brings us to the final verse that we're going to look at this morning. It's the verse that will call us into action. Look at verse 23, if you will. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, he's an author of this letter, was made to minister. So here we go. We, we, we are called to an action. However, before we jump into this action, we need to uh, deal with something uh, very small at the beginning of this verse. It's a very tiny word, a two-letter word that can cause people to get a little bit concerned. It's the word if. However, this word only causes concern if we take the verse out of context of this passage and out of context of the Bible as a whole. This is not the cause for concern for us as believers. And this is not a proof text for those who oppose eternal security. Notice when Paul says that Christ, in verse 22, presents us before God. That is a continuous and undefined action, meaning that he's already presenting you and I before God as blameless and beyond reproach. That is something that, as a believer, has already happened and will continue to happen. Look, God is not presenting us before God to go, okay, hold on, wait, but, ah, uh, yeah, no, no, it looks like he's not a believer. That, that didn't really take no, a true believer is saved, sealed by the Holy Spirit with an unbreakable seal. Plus, Paul continues, he states our security when he refers to believers as already being glorified in Romans chapter 8. Also, the passage that speaks about us as believers being secure in the hand of God, that nothing, 
Nothing in this world, out of this world, can take us out of His loving, powerful, almighty, and sovereign hand. The point is this. If you are a child of God, that you are saved. And that's, that's the kind of the Christianese term, right? We're saved from eternal punishment. We will be in heaven with Jesus Christ. And, and, and the, the idea in this passage is that if you are saved, you will do these things. It's an expectation that Paul has that you're going to do these things we're about to talk about. Warren Wearsby in his book says this, We are not saved by continuing in our faith, but we continue in our faith and thus prove that we are saved. He's essentially pointing out what James says in his book, that we are not saved by our works, but our works prove that we are saved. So this is an understanding of what will happen as true believers. And what does he say up there? He says, we will continue in the faith. Those of you who are reading from the NIV, I like the way the NIV says it. He says, you will continue in your faith, in our faith. See, the meaning of the word continue in the Greek is to persevere. That, that, that we keep going, no matter what happens, we keep on. Look, you and I as believers, as Christians, we are not called to easy things. We are not called to an easy life. We are called to so much more. We are called to leave everything behind and follow Him. We're called to take up our cross, follow Him in all things. We're, we're told to expect Hard times, And when they come, we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, as the book of James tells us. The book of Romans speaks of things that are similar when it says that hard times bring about perseverance. And along with perseverance, listen to this, proven character. You know what we need in our world today? We need believers that have character that will stand, that will not give up, that will not back down. They will continue pushing on. Because what did we hear last week? That if the world hates us, it's because they hated our Jesus first. You, you can only persevere in your faith, however, if you are, as he says in this verse, firmly established and steadfast. Firmly established carries with it the idea of a foundation. I don't know about you, but I grew up in church. I grew up singing beautiful hymns out of a hymn book, right? And uh, my dad's church still sings hymns, uh, and we sing hymns from time to time here. Uh, Laura, you probably know what the song I'm thinking of, Firm Foundation. You know that one? How many of you know how firm a foundation? Okay, a few of you. This is what the first verse says about that firm that foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? It's speaking about that foundation that has been laid, that is there, that is stable, that can be built upon. Of course, we think about foundations and we start thinking about that parable, right? In Matthew chapter 7, of the two foundations. It's a familiar story that we hear, right? There's even a kid's song that goes with it. You know, the house on the sand and the house on the rock. And when the rains came and the floods came, the house on the sand went... Right? Fell down. And then the house on the rock stood firm. Look at the foundation is shaky. The structure cannot stand. Each and every year. I, I do this every year at the first youth group that we do. At the first opportunity I get to speak in chapel at uh, Chesapeake Christian School. I usually have them build some sort of structure. One year they did Jenga. Uh, another year I gave them spaghetti strands and marshmallows. 
And they had to figure out how to build the tallest structure. And then the tallest structure, they didn't get a prize. Uh, I mean, they, they would have to. One year I gave them a deck of cards and said, how high can you build this deck of cards? Of course, what I'm getting at is the idea of a foundation. The, 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 the teams that won were the teams that had the best foundation. It has to, you have to have a foundation. Believers, as you and I, our foundation is Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, He is in all, over all, hold things all together. He's the head of the church. Our salvation is found in Him, nowhere else. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. That is our foundation. Not, not, not how many good things that we can accomplish. Not how many mission trips that we can go on. Not how many verses we can quote or how many debates that we can win. It's found solely, our salvation is found solely in Jesus Christ alone by His grace and His mercy. So on that foundation, Paul says, you know what? You need to be steadfast. This word steadfast only found three times in the New Testament. And the idea behind it is to be firm and immovable. It's to stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. We shall not be moved. First Corinthians says this. You should be and we should be believers immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that our toil is not in vain for the Lord. We know this, right? It is not easy. Not always easy to stand up for Christ, is it? It's not always easy to stand on the principles of God's word, especially in a culture that downplays the role of the Bible in our lives. It will become increasingly difficult to stand and to not be moved away. That's what he says next. Don't, don't be moved away. In my mind, when I think of this idea of being moved away, I think of being swept away. If you've ever been to the ocean, you, you, you get this concept, right? You, you show up to the ocean and, 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 you, and you step into the water and there's just these little waves. It's not that big of a deal. And the waves become bigger and eventually they'll go over you. And as soon as they crash over you, what does that water want to do? It wants to go back into the sea. And so you realize as soon as it goes over you, it goes back out. Lily uh, uh, learned that lesson the hard way one time. Um, and it scarred her for many years. She's just now getting back into the ocean. Um, but she got barreled up the beach and then taken back down. And we had to go get her. Why? Because there was a, an undercurrent that's so strong. And you know how it is. I can remember holding my little girls and going in the water and having to brace myself. Why? Because the waves will come out. And not that they're going over your head, but even up to here, when it goes back out, what do you get? You've got to dig in. You've got to stand firm. You've got to be prepared because if you're not, guess what? You and your baby are going to be swept away. Look, there will always be an undercurrent in our world. In many ways, our world is no different than the world that Paul was writing to. Yeah, we have technology, we have big buildings, infrastructure unmatched by any generation. But the heart of the issue is the same. We, we, the, the heart of the issue are people that are fixed on themselves, want only their own desires. They want to move as far away from the gospel as possible. They're no different. We're no different. Sin. It's sin. Sin has a grip on this world. And let me tell you, it is an ugly grip. But it's an ugly grip disguised by something that is beautiful. Disguised is something we deserve. Disguised is something we are simply entitled to. Because what do we want? We want our choices. We want our desires. We want to be able to have a say in what goes on in this world. And as long as you don't infringe on my wants, then we're okay. 
But as we have stated, the mind that is not fixed on Christ wants the opposite thing of God. And then in turn, what does that make? That makes an enemy of God. That's what we face day in and day out. That is the undercurrent that is threatening to, to sweep us away, away from the foundation of Jesus Christ, away from the hope of the gospel. And of course, we know we've defined that each and every single week, week the, the hope of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that we have. You have the good news. You as a believer, you have heard the good news. You've not only heard it, but you've responded to it. And that good news is what you need to cling to. That hope, that confidence in who Christ is and what he has said in his word. We must, as Paul tells us, continue in our faith. We cannot give up. We cannot stop. We must remain on that foundation, which is Jesus Christ. I want to close this morning by reading you a story. They all like stories. This one is interesting. Florence Chadwick, on the 4th of July, 1951, she attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. The challenge was not so much the distance, but the bone-chilling waters of the Pacific. To complicate matters, a dense fog lay over the entire area, making it impossible for her to see land. She had swam for about 15 hours in the water. 15 hours in bone-chilling temperatures, but there was fog. She couldn't see anything. She couldn't see that she was only a half of a mile away from her destination. What happened? She gave up. Later she told the reporter, look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land, I just might have made it. Look, you and I have no idea what the future holds from day to day. We don't. We have no idea when that finish line of our race may come or where that finish line may be. What we do know is this. That Christ will win this war. He will be victorious as the word tells us. We do know that he will come again. We do know that we will reign with him. But until then, not knowing the day, not knowing the hour, what do we need to do? We need to continue in our faith. May we stand on the solid rock that is Jesus Christ, our firm foundation. How firm a foundation. That last verse of that famous hymn says this. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, never forsake. Let us not be moved away from our call to continue, to persevere. Look, hard times will come. Parents, you will be tempted to lean on the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God to raise your children. Stand firm. Stand firm. Do not give in. Teachers of the word, you may be tempted to water down the gospel to make it just a little bit more friendly. Don't do it. Stand on the word of God. Couples, you may be tempted to fight for your rights and, and follow the example of this world. Continue. Persevere. Students, you may feel like you're losing the battle in your school and that Jesus Christ is not worth following. Continue in your faith. Stand firm. Do not give up. You may be sitting here this morning and going through such a hard time that you cannot see the end in sight. Stand firm on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Do not give up. Continue in your faith. You have been bought with a price. Remember where you came from, how ugly and embarrassing your past was, but you are now secure and you have a future that is secure. That's how God sees us. As holy, blameless, beyond reproach. You are precious. And by the way, we need each one of you to stand for him, to endure, 
to not be swept away, to, as Paul says, continue in your faith. So my hope, my prayer for each one of you is that you stay strong, you keep pushing, and you do not ever give up. Let's pray. Our God, we are in awe of you, Lord, as we think about our past where we've come from, what you've rescued us from. And, and we think about our present situation as we are looked at uh, through the eyes of God as, 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 as positionally perfect, Father. As we have a, a, a place reserved for us in heaven for eternity. Lord, it's, it's so tempting to want to give up. Lord, this life can be so difficult, but Lord, this life can be so beautiful and it's because of you. Lord, we understand that, that you've called us to persevere. Lord, I pray strength for each person in this room. Lord, I don't know each person's situation, but I know that life is tough. Lord, I know that the, that the pressure of the world, it, it, it threatens to sweep us away uh, so, so that we don't stand on the solid rock uh, that is you, Lord. The solid rock of, 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 of the Bible, Father. Lord, help us to stand firm. Help us to stand strong. Help us to continue in our faith. Lord, I pray that for each person here. And Lord, I pray that over Y Bible Church. Lord, as a church that is here in Graysonville, Maryland, the eastern shore of Maryland, Lord, you've called us to continue to persevere, to stand firm, Lord, and I pray that. Lord, help us keep our eyes on you and to not be distracted. We thank you so much for the strength you're going to give us. We thank you so much for the ability that we have each day to, to look into your word and the opportunities we have each week to be challenged. And so we thank you for this opportunity, and we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand.